George Vradenberg is the co-founder and chairman of Us Against Alzheimer's, a patient advocacy organization founded in 2010, which has successfully worked to increase funding for Alzheimer's and dementia research. Along with his philanthropic activities, George Vradenberg is also a very successful corporate lawyer and has been the executive vice president of AOL Time Warner and the Fox Broadcasting Company. In this podcast, we'll discuss the current state of Alzheimer's research and vital transformations analysis of the CMS guidance for Alzheimer's disease, which was commissioned and funded by Biogen. George, it's really great to have a chance to sit down and speak with you. Well, it's nice to meet you and get to know you. And so thank you for inviting me on this podcast. Now, you began Us Against Alzheimer's over a decade ago. Why did you specifically decide to put your philanthropic efforts in Alzheimer's disease? Um... Three generations of my family have been affected by Alzheimer's disease. My late wife's grandmother, mother, and now unbeknownst to her, she passed away from a heart attack uh, five, five years ago, uh, her brother. So we have three generations over 40 years that have impacted by this disease, and we're just representative, just one representative of the 6 million families currently having this disease, probably 10 million families who've had it uh, b- before now, and probably the 20 or 30 million more families that are going to have it in the coming decades. So how has R&D, since you've gotten involved in this, changed? And how much of that is related to us against Alzheimer's? Well, there there are three main uh, givens uh, when we started our organization, that you couldn't get Congress to allocate money disproportionately to one disease over another. Uh, You had to just put more money on the NIH pile, and NIH would make the decision on what diseases to put it into. And when at that time it was $440 million a year for Alzheimer's research and $6 billion a year for cancer, we didn't think that that was a favorable um, measure of the relative unmet need of those two diseases. So uh, we started ourselves actually as a lobbying organization, as a political action committee, to try and get Congress to change its positioning on uh, investing in Alzheimer's disease in particular. Um, the other major uh, thing that we've done, uh, we've now gone from $440 million a year uh, in Alzheimer's investments at NIH to $3.5 billion, uh, is actively start a clinical trial support organization to speed clinical trials. Uh, so we now have a separate organization, a separate foundation that does that. That foundation is converting itself into a venture-backed company. Uh, and so we've actually uh, done a significant uh, growth there in the speed with which clinical trials uh, have occurred. Now, what's changed in the field more generally is that we have diagnostics now to detect whether or not you've got Alzheimer's. At the time, the big potential drug that was coming down the pipeline was a drug called papanuzumab, uh, and it was a very, very large pair of trials that were being done, uh, but they had no way to tell whether or not the people in the trials had amyloid in their brain. So when you introduce a potential amyloid-lowering drug, it's pretty essential to know whether the person uh, that you're testing it on has amyloid in their brain. They didn't have anything. So we have PET scans now that actually can detect that. We now have CSS, cerebral spinal fluid, that detects that. Uh, We're beginning to get to a place where blood will detect amyloid in the brain. So things have changed dramatically in our markers, our detection of Alzheimer's disease. That's a huge impact. I think 
think the NIH investment increases has increased certainly scientific interest in the field. More scientists are going into the field because there's now money in that field. There wasn't money in the field before. Uh, and industry has gone uh, invested much more in the field because they now see that they can detect who has got the disease that they're trying to stop. Uh, and we had an FDA decision last year with respect to Biogen's product in which the FDA set the standard as whether or not your, your uh, new molecule reduces the level of amyloid and the FDA is willing to make the assumption that in doing that you have a reasonable likelihood of in improving the clinical benefit to the patients. And that is going already to accelerate more companies coming into the field. Let's start first with the CMS guidance related to this FDA ruling. So obviously Biogen's clinical trial was a little messy. However, they got an endpoint. It looks promising. But then CMS issues a guidance you know, a month and a half ago, two months ago, at the end of 2021, basically saying that any amyloid-backed or any amyloid action monoclonal antibody, regardless of which company, is going to have to do a CMS-guided trial. So you're talking about the potential for R&D to flow into this and how there's interest there, but then you have CMS. What does that ruling do potentially, or this guidance, what does that do potentially to the space and the sector and all the research? Depends a little bit on what they do in their final decision, which is due out April 11. But uh, at the moment, uh, if implemented in the proposed form, it will chill investment in this space. Uh, if you have to do two clinical trials to get regulatory approval from FDA, and then you have to do another one from C CMS, you put off probably by eight to 10 years the access of. Uh, uh, of those drugs to patients, which is my concern as a patient. But for industry, uh, they're now looking at potentially 20 years of trials. They've got no patent life. Uh, it's a cost to get to market uh, and uh, a chilling effect on investment in the space. Um, and people will say, gee, uh, don't they have to go after Alzheimer's anyway because it's such a big unmet need? Well, the answer is they won't go there if it doesn't make a profit. And so if the time of time to get to market and the revenues associated with there is uncertain, um, then they're not going to invest in the space. They're going to invest in oncology. Yeah, and the research we did on behalf of Biogen, which uh, we just gave testimony last week on House Ways and Means, what we found is we looked at 45 of the drugs that are currently be developed of the 100 that are currently active, the clinical developments. And we found that even just a three-year delay basically took 42 of the 45 and made the return on investment negative. So you're really looking at a substantial impact here from a return on investment perspective. Do you think that because CMS and Alzheimer's targets people over 65 do you do you think that there's any scope outside of CMS or will this this will just crush everything the estimate is 85 to 90 percent of the target class for this class of drugs early AD early Alzheimer's um, is 65 or older so it basically takes away the market so what are the options now it's not out there have been you know there was a consultation period where people could submit commentary what are you hearing in town? You're very, you know, you're obviously one of the key people here in this space. You're very active. Where do you think this goes? I do not see Medicare significantly changing its proposed posture when it issues its final decision in a couple of weeks. Now, one can say, gee, this is a one-off because of the Adjahelm ambiguity and the complicated history of the clinical trials of Adjahelm. Or if you take CMS at its word, uh, it's going to affect the ability to get the next three monoclonal antibodies, which are in late-stage trials, to market. Uh, 
So I think that there is the optimistic view that somehow they'll carve out other non-Edgehelm um, uh, products, and therefore this is a one-off, and it'll affect Biogen, it'll affect uh, Edgehelm, but maybe it's not going to affect the uh, subsequent three drugs, all of which are different and have different effectiveness profiles and safety profiles. Uh, or it, they're going to stick to their word, and that means probably a huge chilling effect. But I don't think, I think that if the CMS comes down with a, final decision that looks very much like its proposed decision. Um, I don't know what Biogen's going to do, uh, but I would look and see whether the ASI stock price changes, whether the Roche stock price changes, Lily. whether the Lilly stock price changes. Uh, the market may read this as a bit of a one-off, but that depends a little on what Medicare's final decision is, as whether they're going to have an easy path out. Uh, for drugs that actually have a clinical trial that shows clinical benefit, where they're going to in in the FDA trials and then still require another clinical trial, yeah. it makes no logical sense. And so, I think the I think the other companies are just holding their breath and saying, "Gee, is there a quick path out of this?" Now, that said, if Medicare is going to require proof of actual clinical benefit in clinical trials uh, for drugs uh, that are going into the Medicare population. This is not a decision that affects only these four companies and these four products. Exactly. It's going to affect every single product in the Alzheimer's pipeline. And by the way, uh, the cancer community with whom we work is alarmed to the language that they use with me. It's war. Yeah. Uh, if in fact this stands, because most of the accelerated approval drugs, the drugs approved on likelihood of success, uh, likelihood of clinical benefit, have been cancer drugs. And boy, has it made a difference in the cancer field. At least for many cancers, this has been a game changer and an investment incentive for companies to go into the cancer field. Yeah, and Scott Gottlieb and Mark McClellan, two former FDA directors, have also pointed out that essentially now we're stratifying our decision <laughs> as to whether or not a drug is an accelerated approval or not. We're going to give treat them differently. You, you pointed out that FDA has already approved this, and this has agreed years in advance, that evidence pathway, and now we're sort of altering things ex post facto. Are Mark McClellan and Scott Gottlieb right that this is not, and you've mentioned this too from the oncology field, does this also go then for Parkinson's, muscular dystrophy, anything where we have a small target population and a, and a difficult outcome where potentially... This is all now up for grabs? and Well, we don't really know how much of an impact it will have. There's no question that the precedent set is one that's going to infect not only all neurological and neurodegenerative disease therapies, but also non-neurodegenerative um, therapies like cancer and MS and uh, HIV and a whole bunch of them that have been so prominently um, stimulated by the presence of this accelerated approval pathway. But we also don't know what more evidence Medicare would require, even if you had a favorable final right. phase three trial. Is the FDA standard for what constitutes a clinical benefit, the degree of improvement in clinical benefit, going to be the same as the FDA's? Is the requirement of a representational quality to the clinical trial population that CMS is imposing, which is not imposed by FDA, mean that virtually every drug that's aimed at the Medicare population is now at risk of having to go through another Medicare? Care-sponsored clinical trial, which, as we said, depending on the therapeutic area, is five to ten years, and so this is uh, this is a precedent that probably j just about every patient access group is deeply concerned about, 
uh, across all therapeutic areas, and so is pharma for different reasons. Sure. And I'd like to pick up something else you were talking about, the amyloid pathway in general. You, you discussed how there's a challenge there from time and patent. And obviously, the amyloid plaques, according to the research, the Nature publication uh, that was published in 2015, which is the basis for a lot of this biomarker, you know, it takes 10 years for those plaques to build up before you get statistically detectable levels of cognitive decline. What would this do if we decide that we're going to do longer? I mean, the fact is you need to have large clinical trials. There's imaging associated to it. The costs are enormous. You're talking 2,500 people for the Lilly and Biogen trials five years before registration. How do you get around that? Is it possible to get around it with the current science, given the reality of the way amyloid plaques develop? Well, we now believe that we can detect amyloid in your brain 20 years before symptoms. And the theory of the case for the scientific community is, gee, can we find a disease-modifying drug, a, a, a drug that would actually slow the growth of amyloid in your brain and thus either prevent or delay uh, symptoms? Uh, this makes it impossible to pursue that strategy because you have to prove clinical benefit. Now, how do you prove a clinical benefit right. in people who don't now have any clinical symptoms? So there aren't no clinical benefits even to be shown theoretically, let alone scientific. It's like the movie Minority Report in pre-crime, you know. <laughs> it's pre-crime. Uh, so if you go back to, let's test a vaccine. There are vaccines in development for Alzheimer's, right? Yeah. So if you go to a vaccine and say, I want to introduce a vaccine, one shot a year, uh, the second you show any amyloid in your brain, why would I ever think that I could do that? Because I'm now going to have to demonstrate a clinical benefit to that vaccine. So what is the length of the clinical trial that I have to conduct? Uh, in pre-symptomatic individuals in order to demonstrate there's a clinical benefit. Five, 10, 15 year trials, because you have to wait to see whether the people who get the vaccine are actually not getting symptoms against those uh, matched placebo populations uh, that are getting uh, this drug, that are getting uh, Alzheimer's. It basically confounds uh, the ability to move along a path that we decided five or six years ago, as you point out, that in fact we could prevent the symptoms of the disease. We did this with HIV AIDS. You can be HIV positive and never get AIDS. So that's the theory of the case of the where we were going with Alzheimer's. You can be amyloid positive but never get symptoms. That's a fine state of affairs. You may have to take a vaccine shot every year, but what the hell? You know, as long as it's deferring or delaying or preventing symptomatic Alzheimer's, I'm fine with that. Yeah. So, so we can't do that now. Yeah. This uh, Medicare decision, we cannot do that. We cannot pursue the scientific strategy that's the industry and advocacy community has been urging uh, for now five, six years. I'd like to look at this from a policy standpoint. If we look at how CMS is now acting, basically they're behaving almost like a European-style health technology assessor after regulatory approval. They're sort of behaving like an HTA. Should we be doing HTA with CMS? Should they have this role? HTA is basically uh, analyze, uh, you know, sort of uh, uh, comparative uh, effectiveness and, and economics. Um, I don't think that's what they're doing, at least not doing it explicitly. I would analogize this situation to a bad insurance company. Okay. Uh, where the insurance company is basically saying, I don't like the costs of all the claims that are going to come in if I start insuring this particular field. So I have to ration this. I have to stand as much as I can in the way of people actually making claims to me. How do I do that is one to, 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 to chill the space. And why do you do that? Well, cancer, uh, obviously, there could be 
50,000, 40,000 people with a particular kind of cancer. And even if you get a million-dollar drug, it's not that much of a cost. You get a $10,000 drug with a million and a half to two million people, it's the cost of Medicare they perceive as Un- unsustainable. Well, in fact, uh, Medicare today is paying well over $200 billion a year to take care of people. That curve is going up to, as Roy Blunt likes to say, to levels of the Defense Department budget in the next two decades, almost inevitably. Uh, so you say, okay, how are you going to get, how do I eliminate that cost out of the, the Defense Department size expenditures at CMS, at Medicare, uh, unless I cure this disease. Well, how do you cure the disease? Probably through medicines. How do I get medicines? I send investment in that space. Right. And now we're chilling it. So as a matter of policy, we're basically look, ignoring all of the existing costs and fixing on let's lower our insurance costs by not really allowing any medicines in the space, which is really suicide for the country. Well, yeah, but it's not alone. I mean, we had the same problems with Savaldi where, you know, this was a drug. Yes, it was expensive. But if you looked at the whole value chain of hepatitis C, you were up to two hundred, three hundred thousand dollars $300,000. But you looked at the, the annuitated risk of one out of five people who required a liver transplant. So th- there's numerous examples where we know that the upfront cost is not the long-term cost. No one makes a decision that way, but we don't have that level of sensitivity in the way we analyze drugs. How do we change that mentality? Well, I think we have to find some metaphors that make sense to people. You know, at least with hep C, you had a drug that basically cured and you, you know, you had to take the bite of paying for the medicine at the same time you're paying for costs. But then having paid for the medicine, you ended up with fewer, lesser costs. Far far fewer costs. So we need some analogies uh, that demonstrate the fact that you do have a problem uh, with a high cost and high prevalence disease that the government may have to bear both the costs of caring for people through Medicare as well as the costs of paying for the drugs that are going to reduce the cost of that care. But there's an overlap. There's a time delay here. We have to bear both costs until you make progress against the care costs. In the long term, cure is a lot cheaper uh, than care. Uh, Cure is a lot cheaper than treatment. Uh, And so we've got to get there. But right now, we're running against a different narrative. The political narrative is uh, that essentially FDA has been captured by industry and and is allowing industry to put low performance drugs at high prices into the Medicare system and get Medicare to pay for it. Uh, And therefore, we need to control drug prices. We need to constrain uh, how it is that we're going to pay for these high priced, high prevalence disease things simply because we're going to punish pharma. Uh, and we think that pharma has basically controlled FDA and FDA is basically bent over backwards and allowing this accelerated approval to be used to allow underperforming or non-performing drugs onto the marketplace at high prices uh, and is this is just a play by pharma. That is the counter narrative to let's save people's lives. Uh, and so right now, uh, so depending on whether you're talking to a progressive Democrat or you're talking about a conservative Republican, they have different narratives about this in their head. One is FDA has been captured by industry and putting poor drugs out at high prices and Medicare is footing the bill for these bad drugs. Uh, And you have others that say this is exactly what we need to do is to stimulate uh, earlier access to drugs because it's going to long term reduce the cost of care. Uh, And so you've got both partisan and philosophic differences on how you view the problem. Uh, And right now uh, we've started with a drug that has a difficult clinical trial history. We sort of had a case, and the lawyers would say this, we have bad facts, we're going to make some bad law here. Right. Uh, and, and so 
We may have to wait till uh, the facts get better with a second or third drug, uh, where the law actually has to change. But this is the first battle in what could be a succession of battles, which I think we will eventually win, because the logic of trying to deny ration, ration care and ration medicines to the Medicare population on some view that it's too costly is going to blow up because of the cost of care of all these people. So, And your point on, you know, this is just the first, if you look at, say, you know, blood pressure medication, lipid-lowering treatments, you know, Lipitor was arguably the best of the class, but it was the fifth one released. You know, there is a natural evolution. If we look at HIV treatments, pegylated interferon was not terribly effective, but it was the first. But then by the time we got the combo treatments, things were very effective. We need to bite the bullet somewhere. Um, But the problem is we're hearing when you speak on the Hill, we do, and I'm sure you do too, there's a lot of people saying, well, we get less drugs. It doesn't matter. We don't care. There's a belief now that, well, we just, we're going to rein this in it no matter what the cost. How do you respond to that? Well, it's basically anti-science and anti-history. I mean, it really is. Um, But the perception among certain elements uh, of uh, members of Congress uh, is that there are bad actors in the world and there are good actors in the world, and we're going to punish the bad actors. And right now, pharma happens to fall into the bad actor category, but they're also the source of cures. Look, I don't like the high price of drugs. I have to pay them. And uh, we argued vociferously, largely privately, but somewhat publicly, uh, with Biogen about the price of its drug. And it reduced the cost of its drug. Uh, and people say, well, it's still too high. Well, of course it's too high. It would be down to $10 would be great. <laughs> but there's a certain reality here about how much these drugs are going to cost. Uh, and the fact that uh, Biogen reduced its cost to, from fifty six to 28000 means that every, the second drug, the third drug, the fourth drug are going to have to come in under 28,000. Correct. So we basically, our patient advocacy has had the effect of saving tens of billions, if not hundreds of billions of dollars uh, in these drugs uh, going forward. So we will, patients care about costs. They care about, obviously, the, the, the effectiveness and the safety of these drugs, but we also care about costs. And so there's some segment of the Medicare population that doesn't have a supplemental policy or is not in Medicare uh, advantage. Uh, they don't have to pay 20% out of pocket for these drugs. And so we care a lot about uh, the price of these drugs. I'd like to get back to something you were talking about, the chilling effect of investment. Obviously, you've had very senior roles in many Fortune 500 companies and media specifically, but these are companies and industries that have invested enormous sums in new technologies. Obviously, we have an odd situation with the biopharma sector in the United States where it has this bargain with the government, this public-private partnership in many ways. Medicare is subsidized by the U.S. taxpayer completely. But yet, there are decisions in the free market that decide which and which places are the most effective to put new technologies. Is it right for um, CMS to be making potentially a decision that could change the allocation of technology away from where it's actually required? Look, someone has to make these decisions. Uh, and this is a balance. This is not black or white. Uh, we both need innovation, but we also make sure that the innovation is going to be effective. And so how is it uh, in, in the world of biopharmaceuticals? Uh, if you're dealing with a Medicare organization, how is it that you balance the need for innovation in the space with assurance that the products actually do work? So the, I don't think that the Medicare impulse here is wrong, but it's who does it and how it's done. Uh, The FDA itself recognizes that you need confirmatory trials with respect to products that go through the accelerated approval pathway. Uh, And that's good. I mean, we ought to make sure that they get confirmed and that they do prove their clinical benefit. 
But having Medicare make those decisions, it does seem to me to be wrong. The expert agency here with all of the neurology background and all the neurologists in the world at FDA who have been through this sort of process for decades uh, and have great expertise in it are damn qualified to make sure that the products that they approve for marketing are safe and effective. Uh, and if, in fact, they're going to accelerate a product on the basis that it promises to do that, they hold people, so it should hold uh, pharmas to that promise. Medicare does not have a neurologist on staff. It has never done a clinical trial, uh, not in any FDA-approved drug. Indeed, this is the first drug that has ever been approved uh, in which they had not covered it to the label that has been agreed to by the FDA. So so we've got an imbalance here. We have the FDA and CMS inside the same Department of Health and Human Resources that is fighting with each other. Yeah. One is overruling the other. So we have spoken to Becerra and said, you've got some fratricide going on here. And usually with fratricide, you basically have a parent that steps in and says, boys, stop it. Uh, and so, so who's the parent? The parent here should be Becerra. Okay. Or the White House. Uh, but, you know, Becerra's got the job of being the Department of Health and Human Services and assuring that, in fact, his FDA is behaving correctly, that his CMS is behaving correctly, but they don't fight with each other in a way that basically chills innovation or destroys access of new products to, to patients when appropriate. So I think this is Becerra's job. It's on his desk. And what was his reaction to that question? He listened. (laughs) Okay, well, that's good. (laughs) Because it's a start. What do you think will happen, George? I don't think Medicare is going to change its view. You don't? No, they may tweak it around the edges, but I don't think that they're going to fundamentally change their view. And so the next stop is Congress, right? You can change Medicare by legislation. This sets a dangerous precedent then because now we're politicizing CMS, essentially. Or they are politicizing themselves. Yes, correct. So where does that end up then, down the road? You hope that it ends up in some rational place in which you basically have CMS and FDA reviewing trial evidence as it comes in so that CMS has the opportunity to say those trial endpoints and the degree of clinical meaningfulness that you're requiring as part of your FDA approval, okay with us. Or it's not okay with us and they have an opportunity to comment at a time when a sponsor can actually change the protocol in their clinical trials. So that's what you would like to do. And to the extent that we actually get more evidence about the effectiveness and safety of these drugs, it ought to be in real world populations because the next evidence development process is how does it work in populations that are not pristine pure uh, populations approved for clinical trials as opposed to the real world. We have real neurologists prescribing. We have real patients who have Down syndrome where we have other comorbidities are actually taking the drug who those populations are excluded from the clinical trial of course but those are real world populations so you really would like to have real world evidence and real world data of what the effectiveness and safety of these drugs are in those populations when we talk to prescribers of the edge helm product and there are prescribers who are prescribing mm-hmm. uh, both the both subsequent to the FDA approval, but also of people that were involved in clinical trials or studies associated with the FDA review. Uh, They're saying about half the people to whom they give this drug are responding and seeming to stay at a stable level at very early, highly functional status for a couple of years, two to three years longer than they would have expected. And about half of them are declining just as if they had never gotten the drug. So there's something about the comorbidities or other circumstances of life. They live in high pollution areas. They, They have particular kinds of hypertension. 
So we need to study the effectiveness of these drugs. So patients care more than Medicare, even more than Medicare, (laughs) about whether the drugs are safe and effective. Of course. Right? I'd like to pick up on what you just said, because the smart money on the street, and if you speak to a lot of the investors who follow biotech, they're saying that the what you just said, that the clinical long-term data that's coming out actually is quite promising when you get beyond the accelerated approval data and you start looking at the long tail of the data, it actually looks really good. You mentioned around Alzheimer's projects in general and how we need to change the narrative. How do we defend the accelerated approval? The primary area of improvement is in cancer. And so if you look at the cancer drugs uh, and the accelerated approvals, uh, they have lowered the, extended the life of a number of cancers uh, significantly. The complaint here is that these confirmatory trials are not done in a timely way, and FDA is not enforcing taking the drug off market if the confirmatory trials either fail or just aren't done. That, it seems to me, is a legitimate argument. Uh, And so some of the bills now in Congress are basically not doing away with all uh, accelerated approval. They're trying to tighten it. How quickly do you have to start the confirmatory trial? Uh, What is the consequence of having a failed confirmatory trial or a confirmatory trial that doesn't meet the, the time demands that are initially imposed on that? That seems to me a reasonable way to approach it. How do you make sure that this confirmatory trial process is conducted intelligently, thoughtfully, in an expedited manner to make sure that the drugs that you've approved as an accelerated approval actually are safe and effective? So I think uh, at least uh, not Medicare, which is overruling accelerated approval, but the congressional proposals to sort of tighten it or to to make it a more disciplined process are, are going in the right, generally the right direction. Because patients care about whether those confirmatory yeah. trials are done and whether they show confirmation of clinical benefit or not. We'd like to know why they didn't show confirmation of clinical benefit if they don't. And are they just then, should they be pulled from the market or should there is a, something about the way the confirmatory trial was conducted that should have been redone. Um, but somehow with the, that confirmatory trial process is important to do in a timely manner and an accurate manner. You mentioned earlier uh, venture philanthropy in some levels, where you folks had gotten involved in venture philanthropy and trying to drive more R&D through your charitable organization. Jeff Bezos, before COVID, had signed on to the Alzheimer's Drug Discovery Foundation's Accelerator. What do you see your role at Us Against Alzheimer's for venture philanthropy? Well, uh, obviously, uh, it's not so obvious, but Us Against Alzheimer's is a nonprofit organization. Uh, the venture philanthropist here is me. I'm putting over a million dollars a year of my personal money into this. I don't get paid, and it's not enriching me. Frankly, I'll make a lot more money if we cure Alzheimer's and I can <laughs> shut this thing down. So the venture philanthropy is obviously a very risk-taking investment. And so I think venture philanthropy is hugely important because the venture philanthropist is less concerned about return, although some are willing to seek return, but at a lower rate or as long as... Yeah, the, the Joey Fund in cystic fibrosis is... Or the classic. Dementia Discovery yeah, Fund, exactly. uh, which has now got Gates and it's got uh, companies and it's got the AARP investing in it, of all people. Right? Sure. You know, they, it's, it's, a, it's nominally a, a for... It's nominally a, a traditional investment vehicle, but where the investors are not laying out their funds in 10 years and expecting some return. They're laying out over 15 years and almost indifferent as to whether they get a return. They'd like to see a return, but quite frankly, that's not why they're in it. So venture philanthropists, I think, are 
critical to stimulating uh, early developments, which are high risk, where you can't attract traditional venture capital, which is looking for a return. There's a lot of moving pieces right now. There's a lot of things going on. If you could implement one change or one recommendation now within the next six months, short term, that would have profound impacts if we were just given the opportunity, what would you like to see done to sort of fix this situation? This is sort of a question that you ask someone who's got alligators around their ankles and says, look at the sunset. (laughs) Well, in many ways we do, George. (laughs) Uh, Because right now I'm fighting a battle with Medicare. I'm fighting a battle in overseas markets. Uh, What I have seen uh, in the last year that was important was the absence of any global approach to this. How do you link and scale existing efforts around the world in a way that taps into both the need from low and middle income countries, non white uh, Caucasians, uh, and on the other side, uh, taps in and doesn't replicate things so that, in fact, you begin to tap into global capital uh, from governments and from foundations and eventually venture investors. And so that's where I've devoted a fair amount of my effort in the last uh, two years with the Davos Alzheimer's Collaborative, which is a partnership between my organization and the World Economic Forum, the people that put on Davos. So that's it's not a regulatory change. Um, if I were to say a regulatory change, I would say Darn it, why don't these regulatory agencies talk to each other about their standards? Why do I have to conduct a slightly different trial in each of the major areas of the world uh, in order to demonstrate the effectiveness of the drug? For patients, we don't care if this is a Chinese drug, a European drug, uh, or a U.S. drug. We just It's like uh, Joe and Lai used to say, I don't care if it's a black cat or a white cat as long as it can catch mice. Right. So I just care that it catches mice, it cures Alzheimer's. So why isn't the globe thinking more holistically, consistently, in a way, systematically to get at the costs of developing, length and costs of getting at a cure, and then actually approving them for market, and then paying for them. And the payment thing is a really tricky thing. If you go to Europe and said, pay for Agilehelm, assuming it was approved, they'll say, no way, it's just too expensive. We just won't pay. Yeah. And so... What are we going to do if you know, there's no revenues? Because this is basically you know, aimed, at, aimed at a population that's basically supported by governments around the world. So I live in Belgium, and this has been the considering, considering opinion for a long time now, unfortunately. And I don't know if that's going to get better. There needs to be an agreement there because the differential in pricing between the U.S. and Europe is becoming a serious, serious issue. Well, they don't take into account the research costs, and the United States is bearing basically consumers, or Medicare is bearing the costs of all the research, the, the failed drugs, not just the current drugs. And so you can't do that. And in Alzheimer's disease, it's 99.5% failure. Yeah, well, yes. So far, I don't know what's uh, excited. The, the two symptoma- the symptomatic drugs in the 90s and early 2000s, yes. Yeah. Well, if you, if you take disease-modifying drugs, it's 100 to zero. Yeah. <laughs> George, it's been a real pleasure. Thank you very much. For well, thank you for, for inviting me on, onto your show, and I appreciate it. And you obviously are very, very smart in this field, and so I commend you for bringing all these issues to the fore. Well, thank you, and you're obviously someone who <laughs> knows their onions as well, as the French would say, and it's, uh, it's great to meet you. Thanks. Take care. While Biogen commissioned and funded Vital Transformation's research on the impact of CMS's draft national coverage determination, which is discussed in this podcast, Biogen played no role in this podcast content. The views expressed in it are purely those of Vital Transformation LLC and our guest, George Vradenberg.